Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Jimmy Tingle Show. I am Jimmy, and I want to introduce you to a new segment of our show, the Meet the Candidate series. It is intended to give candidates running for public office a platform and a voice. So voters know who is running for office, why they're running, and what they hope to accomplish if they are so fortunate to be elected. So please feel free to share these interviews with your family and friends and citizens around this fine land, because an educated and informed population is essential for a healthy democracy. And isn't that what we all really want? A healthy democracy? Enjoy the interviews. Stay healthy. My name is Jimmy Tingle, and I approve this message. And the candidate I want you to meet, ladies and gentlemen, is Mr. Quentin Palfrey. Quentin Palfrey is a former Massachusetts Assistant Attorney General and was the first Chief of Staff of the Office's Health Care Division. He served as a Senior Advisor in President Obama's White House Office of Science and Technology and as Acting General Counsel for the Department of Commerce on day one of the Biden-Harris administration. He's also the founder of the Voter Protection Corps, an organization that works to fight voter suppression. Quentin is running for Attorney General of Massachusetts to address the everyday issues facing the people of Massachusetts. Please welcome to the show the one and only Mr. Quentin Palfrey. Hello, Quentin. How are you? Hey, Jimmy. Great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Good to see you again. Quentin, just give my uh, audience a little bit of a background on you. You grew up here in Massachusetts. Uh, from a political family, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, my parents are pediatricians um, and I grew mm-hmm. up watching them uh, care for some of the most vulnerable uh, communities in Massachusetts. My dad was working in Worcester. My mom was working in Boston and we lived uh, in Southborough in, in Worcester County. And I really admired their commitment to public service and was inspired by that to uh, get involved in uh, number of uh, charitable enterprises. Um, when I was in college, I founded a literacy program and some public housing facilities and uh, homeless shelters in Boston and Cambridge, um, and then went to law school and uh, have been involved in various ways in public service ever since. It's true. We've got a lot of roots here in Massachusetts, proud of that, uh, proud of that heritage and, you know, really yeah. feel a commitment to this, uh, to this community. So when you were working with President Obama, in the White House, how was that? Oh, such a wonderful experience. I was very inspired uh, by his campaign in 2008. I was involved in voting rights issues. I've been involved in voter protection for a long time. Um, we have a system where people of color, young people, people who move around a lot face obstacles to registering and voting that other folks in the system don't face. That's when I think of the great challenges of our democracy right now. And that's gone back for a long time. I've been working on these issues for a long time. And that's how I got involved with Obama, was working on those issues from state to state and uh, eventually in Ohio. And then when he won, I had the opportunity to come into his administration um, as a political appointee. And it was really a magical time. Uh, We were dealing with some really big challenges. Uh, We had a uh, uh, the greatest uh, recession since the Great Depression. And so we were trying to claw our way out of those challenges. But I also felt like we were part of a community that was really trying to to build uh, something in the country and build an economy that worked for everyone, uh, build civil rights for everybody. And so being a part of that community and being able to be inspired by somebody who I think will go down in history as one of the great presidents and is also just a terrific person. You know, we're in a time in American history where there's a lack of civility, um, where uh, there's a lot of difficulty uh, getting common ground. And I think that uh, Obama 
uh, and uh, Michelle Obama, the first lady, really demonstrated a kind of civility and dignity and, uh, you know, uh, something that, you know, you model for your kids. And I think it's really important to try and hold on to that. Uh, when you're yeah. in the public sphere. Um, and so tell me about Joe Biden. How was it working with the Biden and Harris administration? Yeah. So, I mean, I was involved in a transition from George W. Bush to Obama and from uh, Trump to uh, Biden. And I will tell you, they were very, very different experiences. Um, you know, a lot of the folks who were involved in the George W. Bush administration, they had different views from us, but uh, they ran a very competent organization and uh, transitioned over to us you know, a government that was uh, well-functioning. The Trump administration left uh, the government in shambles um, and was characterized in many ways by, you know, corruption and mismanagement and uh, was really very, uh, was really very difficult transition. So on day one of the Biden-Harris administration, part of the reason why I went back into government uh, was that I thought it was helpful to have some people who had been there before who didn't need to find their way around the bureaucracy and who would be able to to step in pretty quickly um, to clean up some messes. One of the messes that I personally uh, was very, very involved in uh, was we I inherited as acting general counsel of the Commerce Department uh, all of the legal uh, issues relating to the U.S. Census uh, that had been very badly mismanaged uh, by the Trump administration. And we did need to reverse course very quick, quickly in partnership with folks in the Census Bureau and the folks in the Justice Department um, to uh, try to get uh, that census in, in a better direction. Uh, we also inherited um, some uh, internal mismanagement, some of which was characterized uh, by very bad behavior um, in the national security space. Um, and so, uh, you know, I led a team of uh, about 400 lawyers. Um, it was an agency of about 50,000 people, a $12 billion budget. Um, and, uh, you know, it's really been uh, pretty poorly mismanaged. And so we wanted uh, both to kind of clean up those messes, get in a new uh, secretary and DEPSEC and uh, general counsel, um, and also try to drive forward uh, our 100-day agenda. And a lot of that did remotely here from Massachusetts. But it was a real honor to be involved uh, in the administration Ultimately, I wanted to stay in Massachusetts and I wanted to uh, explore running for attorney general. Now, what made you decide to run for attorney general? So I love the attorney general's office. I was in the attorney general's office as an assistant attorney general and as the first chief of the healthcare division. And I've seen firsthand how much impact uh, the AG can have on people's lives. I personally was involved in a lot of issues around healthcare. Um, and uh, and consumer protection uh, when I was in the office. And I think those uh, remain very important issues for a lot of people here today. Um, it too, it's too hard to access health care. We underinvest in, in substance use treatment and mental health services. Uh, health care costs too much. You, the need for more investment in substance use services. Um, so those sets of issues are really important to me, as are some of the challenges of trying to build an economy works for everybody, not just the people at the very top. Um, the AG has a really strong consumer protection role and also a real, really important role in workers' rights standing up uh, for uh, folks uh, who are being mistreated in the employment context. Um, and so I really care about that set of consumer protection issues. I care a lot about our public schools. We have uh, a lot of disparities in our public school system. Um, we had this Brown versus Board of Education sort of uh, created this expectation that we were going to have schools that were integrated and schools that were equal. And we have neither of those things uh, right now in Massachusetts. So I think that's a real civil rights challenge. We have uh, a climate crisis, uh, which uh, could not possibly be more important uh, for 
our future, um, and we have an international community and a, and a federal government who are failing uh, to meet that moment. Um, and so I think we need the states to step in, and the state AG, I think, has a really big role in trying to tackle uh, the climate crisis. We also have a Supreme Court um, that's been hijacked by radical uh, conservative extremists um, who are taking aim at some of our fundamental rights. Um, And that opinion that Justice Alito wrote on reproductive rights um, also signals a really broad attack on uh, on LGBTQ rights, on equal marriage, on contraception, on uh, interracial marriage. Um, And so it's very hard to understate uh, the challenges uh, that we face in our legal system. It's just uh, chilling uh, to see that an armed mob storm to the Capitol to try and disrupt the peaceful transition of power. Um, as you know, I've, I've spent a lot of my career sort of thinking about how we can shore up our democracy and, and voting rights. Um, and I think that Massachusetts has a really important role to play in that. And the AG has an important role to play in that. So we need to sort of take, uh, take on uh, this leadership role. I think the AG office has played that role. Um, mm-hmm. for, for the last couple of decades. Um, and I'd like to be part of that. Yeah. Uh, I assume you were uh, quite impressed with Mara Healy's tenure as attorney general, the people's lawyer. Would you hope to follow in those footsteps in terms of her approach to uh, her work as attorney general? Yeah, absolutely. So Mara Healy has been a terrific attorney general and the AG office in Massachusetts has been a national leader on so many different issues. I had the great Pleasure to serve alongside her. I was the chief of the healthcare division when she was the chief of the civil rights division. We worked together on a number of issues, um, and I think that the uh, the proud tradition of that office, uh, you know, has been in full display recently. Suing Exxon Mobil, suing Purdue Pharma, suing uh, the Trump administration over and over and over again. Um, you know, the office uh, in recent years has played a big role in fighting the foreclosure crisis. Has played a big role in taking on. Walmart um, has played a big role in uh, taking on the climate crisis in the context of uh, the case that was called Massachusetts versus EPA. Um, So Massachusetts Attorney General's office is much more uh, than sort of one of many uh, statewide offices in a medium-sized state. The Massachusetts AG office has played a really um, uh, strong role, a national leadership role. Take take gun control. Uh, It's just devastating, you know, to see I'm a dad. Uh, drop off my my five year old at school. See cops, uh, cop cars protecting our, our schools, and uh, you know, very grateful for that service. But it is just chilling to see, um, you know, to see uh, these these mass shootings and and see the NRA um, just be able to prevent any meaningful action at the mm-hmm. federal level. Massachusetts needs to lead on those kinds of issues. We have um, and we've had good results um, uh, in terms of preventing gun violence, um, but that leadership role uh, needs to be uh, at the forefront of what we do. The AG doesn't need, or do they need, legislative approval? Do they need the help of a governor? Or is that something you can just go with your own uh, moral compass on things yeah, like Yeah, I think that? it's it's more the your own moral compass. Um, you, in Massachusetts, our attorney general is independently constitutionally elected. So in some states, the AG works for the governor, um, just as the federal AG works for the, in, in the presidential administration. In our system, the AG is independently uh, constitutionally elected. And so uh, in terms of the um, the law enforcement and, um, uh, and and some of the legal aspects of the work, uh, you're obviously uh, governed by the Constitution and by your own, you know, by the laws and mandates. But uh, but you can do uh, a lot of that within uh, the AG's purview. 
so the AG has really broad uh, authority. At the same time, uh, there are a lot of opportunities to collaborate with other parts of the government. Um, and uh, you know, I'd love to be able to work with a Democratic administration to take on some of these bold, bold challenges. The AG has a, a real tradition of engaging with the legislature on important issues. Right. So like I was reading your list of things that you were, you know, you, you aspire to work on, dismantling the barriers of structural racism, standing for with workers against wage theft, things like this. For example, structural racism, is that something, how do you see, you know, how do you see approaching that in the state? So where you live and the color of your skin should not determine what kind of education your kids get. Um, and I think that uh, that is a civil rights challenge of the highest order and something we uh, certainly uh, have, have, have talked about a, a lot on the trail as one of the great sort of civil rights challenges of our time. And the AG is the chief civil rights uh, officer in the Commonwealth and I think does need to take uh, that issue on with urgency. We have a constitutional obligation, an affirmative constitutional obligation to our children to provide a free and appropriate public education. So I think we need to take that very seriously. Um, you uh, asked sort of how do you think about structural racism? And I think of it as something that unfortunately pervades uh, almost every aspect of uh, the office and almost every aspect of our economy and society. Um, so if you talk about criminal justice reform, certainly um, there are huge racial disparities in terms of who ends up in the criminal justice system and how they're treated in the criminal justice system. Um, so taking on um, uh, police accountability, criminal justice reform, corrections oversight is absolutely part of the racial justice agenda. Um, but there are huge uh, racial disparities in the healthcare system. There are huge racial disparities in the voting system, in the economy. Um, uh, as you talk about how you're going to tackle the climate crisis, we know that communities of color are hit hardest um, by uh, the climate crisis um, and uh, are, are most in need of uh, supportive voices to prevent uh, polluting um, uh, uh, facilities from coming into those communities. Um, so unfortunately, Racial justice needs to be everybody's uh, priority, um, no matter uh, sort of where in the office uh, you work. And uh, so that's the way I would think about it. On day one of the Biden-Harris administration, uh, Biden-Harris administration issued an executive order that essentially said, uh, everywhere you are in the government, uh, we're going to hold you accountable um, for taking on racial justice. It was a similar one relating to the climate crisis. And I would like uh, to model that within our office and essentially say, you may think that your job is working on labor, uh, but, your, but your job is also working on structural racism. You may think that your job is advising uh, government agencies about how to do, uh, you know, uh, some of, some of their, uh, their work. But when you do that, I will expect you uh, to take on structural racism as part of your mandate. Um, mm-hmm. And everyone needs to be accountable. And how would you address, for example, education? in the state of Massachusetts, so it's not based on property taxes. So much of it's based on property taxes. And if you have nice property, you got better schools. And if you don't have nice property, you don't. Is that something the AG could actually be involved in? But that, I assume you would need the legislature and you need the governor behind you to enact those types of reforms. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, a couple a couple things here. First, um, you know, I'm a big fan of evidence and data. Um, as we're sort of tackling large issues, we should follow uh, what the data show us. And one of the things that I think that I've, I've seen uh, in this area um, is that a lot of the disparities that we see um, in the education system and in people's life trajectories are happen very early. And uh, so if you just uh, start to tackle 
the, the, the disparities in the education system when people enter kindergarten, uh, you've already um, uh, you, you already have a number of those challenges to contend with. Um, and so you, we need to start in our communities. We need to start with high quality uh, child care and daycare. We need to start uh, with dealing with some of the challenges relating to intergenerational poverty and um, uh, and racism in, in our communities. Um, you then, you know, we, we need to tackle uh, some of the disparities in the education system itself. The Student Opportunity Act was a step in the right direction to change uh, the foundation budget. Uh, we have a lot of a uh, lot more work to do uh, to remedy the inequalities in the resources that are devoted to uh, to education. But the solutions that DC uh, and the, the governor's uh, administration have uh, have looked to uh, to take on some of these challenges have actually, I think, in many cases, uh, made the problems worse. Do you know of any cities in the country? Are any cities getting it right? Because w- most of our cities are very similar in terms of the the challenges of public education or homelessness or abuse, you know, uh, substance abuse disorder or criminal justice. Do you know of any cities roughly the same size that are doing a as good a job or better than than we are that we could emulate or cities in uh, in other countries that are doing it better? I think it's a great question. Um, I think you started with something, Jimmy, that I agree with, which is that the property tax system um, Mm -hmm. of uh, funding education um, does have, uh, you know, some real challenges in terms of how we we equalize some of the resources that are being spent. And so I think that is one of the things that really gets in the way here. I'd love to see a broader based uh, way, and some countries uh, have broader based ways of, of equalizing uh, the funding. And you know, more, more than that, sort of taking on um, some of the underlying challenges. But no, I think I think more broadly, uh, there are some systems that we need to kind of rethink. Think about criminal justice reform. Um, we have uh, tried to arrest and incarcerate our way out of larger structural problems, and instead, we need to think about how to invest more in prevention, in you know, community engagement, in, in substance use treatment, in stable housing, and uh, mental health services. In our healthcare system, we have the same problem. We spend too much, but we spend it too late. We spend it in the healthcare system, and we should be uh, focusing more on uh, prevention and public health and chronic disease management and those sorts of things. And I think the same is true with our educational system, that really sort of taking on equality of opportunity uh, mm. does require structural reforms uh, to the way that we uh, fund and, and structure the schools, but it, but, but it also involves being really honest about uh, some of the structural challenges in our economy uh, more broadly, some of the ways in which uh, cyclical poverty works and racism, um, uh, you know, sort of has an intergenerational component. Um, it's hard work um, and we yeah. got to keep it on, um, and, but it's hard to sort of think of it. Uh, you have to think about it uh, in, intersectionally, I think. One of the other issues that we talked about when we were both on the trail a few years ago was the millionaire's tax. What are your views on the millionaire's tax? Are you still in favor of it? Or absolutely. You- absolutely. Please. I've been for a long time. Uh, I believe that uh, the fair share amendment is an important step, um, asking the very wealthy to pay a little bit more so that we've got more resources to invest in transportation and in education and trying to build a broader based economy. I think it's something that we should do. We probably should do more than that, but uh, it's a very good start. Yeah, good start. Quentin, so if somebody wants to make a donation <laughs> to your campaign, 
How would they find you? Where would they find you? If you would like to make a contribution to our campaign, um, you can join us at uh, quentinpalfrey.com. Um, we also are running a truly grassroots organization. I was so proud to win the endorsement of the Democratic Party at the convention last weekend. We've been endorsed by Progressive Mass, Progressive Dems of Mass, Our Revolution Mass. Um, and uh, we'd love to have your help uh, as volunteers in your own community. We have to get our message out to a large number of people. Um, we already have uh, our Republican opponent, Jay McMahon, uh, taking shots at us uh, for the, the general election as well. And so uh, we'd, love to, um, we'd love to have your help and, and, and please join our grassroots team uh, at QuentinPalfrey.com. Great. And people can volunteer there as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. We'd love to have your help. Well, Quentin, it's great to see you again. Congratulations on your decision to run. Congratulations on getting the endorsement of the uh, Mass Stems. And I will see you on the campaign trail. It's a real, real pleasure to be here with you today. Yeah, a pleasure to be with you as well. Thank you for joining us today. This has been a Humor for Humanity production. Our mission is your mission. Humor for Humanity at JimmyTingle.com. Thank you.